Hello, everybody. I'm uh, Pastor Andrew, associate pastor here. Um, pastor Steve is uh, out in, uh, well, you just heard the, he's having fun, having a horrible time all at the same time. So, pray for him. <clears throat> all right, we are on week number two of our Lenten series, Welcome to the Wilderness. It's an invitation to join Jesus in the wilderness. Uh, for Lent, we are joining Jesus uh, in the wilderness. Uh, the, uh, of course, we've talked about this uh, last week. What, what happened to Jesus in the wilderness? We know he was, he was tested and tried, he fasted, he prayed, and he lamented. You see, uh, 2019, if you remember, it's a year of living justice. And uh, as we've begun this year looking at the law of God, We've uh, discovered that the law creates a a just culture that defines justice in in all of our relationships. It uh, defines justice in our relationships with God, our relationship with family, relationship with the marginalized, relationship with foreigners. Uh, And uh, and so there's this beautiful view of of what our relationships are supposed to be like. And it gives us this little picture of that day when Jesus returns and he sets everything straight and everything really will live according to God's just order. But we're not there yet. We're not there yet. And so because we're not there yet, uh, part of the Christian job, part of following Jesus, is learning how to lament the injustices that we see. Uh, And uh, so we're invited during Lent specifically to join Jesus' lament over the injustices around us, and, and there are so many uh, to pick from, so many injustices around us. Uh, the events that unfolded in New Zealand just a couple of days ago, uh, just a, a reminder of the horrible brokenness of this world and this life. And, and that's, that, that's one among many, many things that we could be uh, lamenting over. But we're also, in addition, to call, in addition to lamenting about the things around us, we're also called to lament about the injustice inside of us. Uh, Not only is the creation and the world around us broken and bent and twisted and God's good order has has been uh, perverted and twisted, that's also happened inside of us too. And so so Lent is this time where Christians throughout history have uh, volunteered to lament with Jesus. A lot of our uh, lamenting uh, isn't volunteer. It happens, somebody dies, some terrible tragedy happens, we lose something, something Something awful goes on, and uh, we don't, it's not volunteer, but Lent is a time where we learn how to practice uh, lamenting with Jesus. Now, to help us with that, we are uh, in the book of Numbers, and uh, uh, the book of Numbers, now, uh, we talked about this last week, Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness were supposed to, are supposed to, remind us of Jesus, or sorry, the 40 years that the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness. And last week, week number one of our series, um, we learned that God was trying to make the, the Israelites, his people, into, first of all, a people of his presence, a people where the, the presence of God was actually among his people. Secondly, uh, they were supposed to learn or they were supposed to become a holy people, people set apart for God, devoted to God, set apart for God's purposes. And thirdly, they were supposed to, God was trying to make them into a mobilized people, 
people who were ready to move when he called them to move. When, he, when God said it's time to set out, they would set out. And, uh, and in that, they were, they were practicing for those years uh, to become a, a, a nimble, uh, agile people who could walk with the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, as the New, Lang- New Testament language has that. And, uh, and so, <clears throat> we're going to keep marching through the book of Numbers. Uh, last week, we looked at chapters um, uh, 1 through 11, and <clears throat> uh, we uh, found out at the end of, sorry, 1 through 10, at the end of chapter 10, the Israelites were ready to set out. They had heard the law, they had uh, set up and created the tabernacle, the priesthood was all set up and ready to go. Uh, they knew what, where they were going, they knew what was supposed to happen, and they blew these special silver trumpets just for this Woo! There we go. Uh, just for this occasion, and, uh, and, and everyone set out with, with uh, just, everyone, it, was, it was great. Um, and there was all this enthusiasm and hope, and everything was going to go great, and it took an entire verse in the Bible before things went horribly, horribly wrong. So, to help us understand that, we're going to watch a video. So, again, if you want to get that video ready to go, um, uh, you have in your, if you got a bulletin, you got this cool little map here. And uh, they are in the video, they're going to show this little map of the book of Numbers drawn out for us. So, uh, we'll watch the short video. And, and if you miss something, you know, take this home with you. And also, these are all free on YouTube. So, go to the Bible Project book of Numbers and you'll find this exact thing. So, let's go for it. This fourth book of the Bible carries forward the story of Israel after their exodus from slavery. God had brought them to Mount Sinai, and he entered into a covenant with them. And despite Israel's rebellion, God had graciously provided a way for Israel to live near his holy presence in his tabernacle. The book of Numbers begins as Israel wraps up their one-year stay at Mount Sinai. And they head out into the wilderness Now, the book's storyline is designed according to the stages of this journey. So the first section begins at Mount Sinai, but then they set out and travel to the wilderness of Haran. And then from there, they travel to the plains of Moab, which is right across from the mountain. Now, the first part opens with a census, where the people are numbered, that's where the book takes its name. And then there are laws about how the tribes of Israel were to be arranged in their king. So the tabernacle was to be at the center, and then around that, And then in chapter 12, Moses 
So God does, but not at the expense of his justice. He gives these Israelites what they want, but not in the land. And God sentences this generation to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until they die. Only their children will get into the promise land. Now you think this severe consequence would wake them up, but it gets even worse. So in the next story, there's a whole group of Levites that begin a rebellion. And they challenge Moses and Aaron's leadership, saying that they have gone way so God deals severely with these Levites, and he renews his commitment to Moses and Aaron and his leadership. Now, as they leave the region of Paran and hit the road, it goes downhill yet again. The Israelites start complaining again about their thirst, and they ask why Moses even brought them out of Egypt in the first place. So God tells Moses to speak to a rock to bring out water for all these people. But Moses doesn't really do this, he oversteps his bounds. He hits the rock twice. And then says, you rebels, we have to bring water out of this rock. So Moses dishonors God by putting himself in God's place as the one who brings out the water. And so Moses brings down on himself the same fate as the wilderness generation. He too will die in the desert and never get to enter the promised land. After this, the Israelites rebel yet again. And God brings a very strange judgment on them. Then the snakes come and bite the people. And so Moses again intercedes on God tells Moses to do this, to make a bronze snake and to lift it up on a pole, so that whoever looks at this snake would be healed of the poisonous snake bite. It's a very strange signal, but it speaks to the challenge that God has by being faithful to his covenant. He's right to bring justice on the Israelite evil and sin, but even God's justice gets transformed into a source of life to those who will look to God for healing. From here, the people head into the
So the book ends with the new generation poised to enter into it. And Moses is about to deliver his final word of wisdom and knowledge. But for now, that's what the book of Numbers is all about. All right. Thank you. Go back to the PowerPoint here. All right. So we are going to zero in today on a part of that, um, uh, a part of that story, chapters uh, 11 through 20, kind of uh, look at some of what was going on for those chapters. Uh, if you could turn with me to Numbers chapter 11, and uh, we're going to start in verse 1. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now the people became like, now this is, by the way, this is immediately after they've set out with great hope and expectation. Genesis 11, or sorry, Numbers 11, chapter 1. Ver, chapter 11, verse 1. Thank you. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. I'm, by the way, I'm, I'm reading from, from the New American Standard Version. It's not as pretty sounding as the NIV, which is in your pews, or Pastor Ben and Pastor Steve love the, their, their favorite version is the, the New Living uh, Translation, and uh, um, and this is not as pretty, so but I, there's uh, it's more uh, kind of a word for word translation, so a little a slightly more kind of accurate, and uh, it'll, you'll see as I go through why I'm picking that for this particular sermon. Okay, so they became like those who complain in the hearing of the Lord, and when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them, and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. The people, therefore, cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. We see God's justice and his grace right in the first couple of verses. Verse 3, so the name of that place was called Taborah because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Verse 4, and the rabble who were among them had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There is nothing at all to look at except this manna. Interesting. So we've already... Now, I, I, I want to pause here and point out the irony the manna, as we've read about before, would appear in the morning with the dew, and uh, nobody knew where it came from, and they would use it and eat it every single day. Everybody always had enough. Everyone's stomach was always full, and it was basically a daily miracle that they were witnessing with their own eyes right in front of them. They were seeing a miracle, and here, only a short time after leaving Egypt, they're already bored with the miracle. And what they are looking now, at this point, they are looking with fondness back to when they were slaves. Now, this, was, this is in living memory, uh, their time of slavery, okay? This, was not, this is not generations ago, oh, those good old days of slavery. No, they, this just happened to them where they were, they'd been oppressed, where they'd been beaten down, exploited, many of their people killed, and they're looking back with fondness, okay? Is anyone noticing the irony here, and, they're, and they are blind to the daily miracle that's happening right in front of their eyes. And so uh, 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 you can take time to read the rest of the story. It's a fascinating story. 
God uh, does give them meat to eat. He causes quail, those little little birds, uh, to fall out of the sky. And there's so many, so much quail that it says uh, it's it's like several cubits high. So the snow that we had up until you know that when you would walk out, it was up to your waist. That's how that's how uh, the ground was was littered with quail for them to eat. There was so much quail. All right, but. It came with a price. Uh, If you want to just peek with me um, a few uh, verses ahead, um, it says here uh, in verse 33, while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very severe plague. And so the place of that, the name of that place was called Kiproth Hatava because there, there they buried the people who had been greedy. Now, uh, now, already, I know some of us, are, when we read the story, we start struggling with God seems so harsh here. Uh, and, uh, and yes, in many ways, he does seem harsh there. I want to point out, though, uh, that word there, and this is part of why I picked using the NASB today. Uh, it, in verse 34, it says that they were greedy. It says that uh, back in verse 4, um, that greed, not just here, but throughout the Scripture, Old and New Testament, is associated with idolatry. Um, it is associated with uh, worshiping a God who is not God. So it's not just that, oh yeah, I'm, I'm kind of hungry, but there's actual idolatry going on in their hearts. And uh, verse um, 30, or sorry, verse 20 of the same chapter, uh, in God's interpretation of this event, it says, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt. All right. So God knew what was going on in their hearts, and it might appear harsh the consequence they had to face. Uh, but in from God's interpretation, we see that idolatry was going on in their hearts, and uh, and and that in God's estimation, it was a rejection of Him that was really happening. Okay. All right. So as the video pointed out, uh, things uh, get worse. So uh, chapter um, eleven. Now chapter twelve. Uh, oh, sorry, sorry. Before we move on to chapter 12, I need to point out something very, very important. Um, <clears throat> this whole incident where they got hungry and they got bored with the manna, but they still had to eat the manna, this whole incident actually served a much larger purpose, a lesson that they were supposed to learn in the wilderness. What was that lesson they were supposed to learn in the wilderness? Well, I'm glad you asked because, keep your finger in Numbers chapter 11 and 12, If you could skip ahead with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8, the Bible actually gives the lesson. It actually explains the lesson they were supposed to learn. Now, this is really important, so bend the powers of your will uh, and the powers of your brain to to try to listen to this. Deuteronomy chapter 8, I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. Deuteronomy chapter 8. All the commandments that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do that you Live and multiply and go on and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. And you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. And he humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, and nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand 
that humans do not live by bread alone, but humans live by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Now, those of you who are savvy and smart, somebody in the New Testament quoted this exact verse. Does anyone know who that was and what that incident was? Yeah, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, Jesus quotes this. All right? And if you remember, this is the, this is the scene where Satan comes and he uh, tempts and tests Jesus, tries him, and, uh, and Satan says uh, to him, if you are really the son of God, then you know, jump off this cliff and nothing bad's going to happen to you because the angels are going to swoop in and carry, pick you up and you'll be fine. Or, no, actually, that's, sorry, that's the wrong one. He says, <laughs> he says um, if, you, you know, uh, if, you, uh, if you're really hungry, if you're really the son of man, uh, cause these stones to become bread. Okay, and Jesus responded by saying, um, uh, man does not live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. So the Israelites were supposed to learn. Jesus learned it. Jesus succeeded at learning this lesson. The Israelites failed. So Jesus's experience in the wilderness pointed directly back to this incident in chapter 11 of Numbers. All right, and we learn from this that God was making the Israelites not only a people of his presence, not only a holy people, not only a mobilized people, but also a dependent and trained people. All right, dependent on God. He humbled them, let them get hungry, and that was so they would eat the manna, And from that, they would learn to be a dependent people and a trained people. Now, I I put the word trained in there. The actual scripture says disciplined. Uh, uh, Almost everybody I know has a problem with the word discipline. They think it's a mean word or whatever. It's not a mean word. It's a good, loving word. Uh, So I put the word trained in there so you're less offended. Uh, But but Deuteronomy there, verse 5, Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God is disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Now, if you've had harsh, uh, unloving discipline from your father, this is going to be a difficult challenge for you. It's going to be a struggle. Uh, But the intention here in Scripture was to give the people the most sort of tender idea of of how discipline could actually be a good thing, a a kind thing. It's, It's the discipline of a good coach who sends his athletes on another lap around, not because he wants to stick it to them, not because he's mad, not because he's trying to punish them, but because he wants those athletes to be ready for the challenge ahead. So he sends them on another lap. It's that kind of loving discipline. All right, so now we're going to move ahead to chapter 12 here. Uh, I'm not going to read through the next couple stories uh, um, fully, just touch a few verses, but it says... um, Uh, in the next uh, story in chapter 12, it's about how Miriam and Aaron complain Moses' leadership. Miriam and uh, and Aaron were his brother and sister. They've played a very prominent role in the story up to this point. Uh, Both have been used by God as prophets. Uh, Both have been very powerful and important leaders and uh, played a critical role. But now even they are calling Moses' leadership into question. 
uh, <clears throat> the next story, chapters 16 uh, through 17, uh, we're actually, we're, we're, and we're, we're skipping chapters 13 and 14. Uh, the reason is that story is so important. It's the critical turning point of this entire story of, of numbers, and you're going to have to wait for it till next week. Uh, of course, you can cheat and read, uh, read the Bible, but <clears throat> anyway, I never told you that reading the Bible is cheating. But so we're going to highlight that story next week because, and have a whole uh, sermon dedicated just to chapters 13 and 14. Uh, but if you skip ahead with me to chapter 16, this is the story about Korah. Uh, and uh, Korah was one of the Levites. He's, he was also one of the leaders. He had been set apart uh, by God uh, in, uh, to be, uh, have this very special role as a leader in the, among the Levites. Uh, and, and Moses says to him, when, when, when Korah comes and, and says, and Korah gathers 250 other leaders with him and, and says, it's, it's, you know, you've gone too far, Moses. Who are you to exalt yourself above uh, the people of God, this holy assembly? Um, and then Moses says uh, back to him in verse 13 of chapter 16, is it not enough that you have, uh, that, um, you have brought up, oh, sorry, um, go back to verse uh, 9. Moses says to him, uh, is it not enough that uh, the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do the service of the, of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them? Uh, and so even though Korah has gotten this very special leadership role, uh, it's not enough, and he's, we don't know if it's jealousy, it doesn't really say in Scripture uh, what it is, but he opposes, his, he opposes Moses' leadership. And, uh, and there's a very severe consequence for Korah and some of the other uh, people who stood with him. Um, in, uh, later in chapter 16, the ground actually opens up right underneath uh, Korah and some of his co-leaders uh, in the rebellion and swallows up them in their, their tents and they, they disappear. Uh, and then some of the other leaders who'd been following Korah, um, a fire comes out of their incense burners and, and, and consumes them. So it's this terrible consequence. Uh, and uh, it, it, again, struggle a little bit with wow, God seems really harsh in this. Uh, but I want to ask the question, what were they supposed to learn from this incident, these incidents of, of uh, rebellion? Um, if uh, We're going to cheat again and look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. So keep your finger back in uh, Numbers chapter 16 there. But go ahead with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'm going to read starting in verse 10. Then, it, and this is this is again this is Moses's explanation decades later of, to the Israelites about what they were supposed to have learned back with this earlier these incidents with uh, the rebellion of Miriam and Aaron, Aaron and, and and Korah. Verse 10. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you shall eat and be satisfied. Verse 12, and then watch yourself, lest you forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall fear only the Lord your God, and so shall worship him and swear by his name. Does that um, uh, 
verse there, does that anyone recognize somebody or an incident in the New Testament where this got quoted? Anybody know where that, yeah? Yeah, Jesus quoted this. This is, Jesus also quotes this in his temptation. Remember, this is, the one, uh, this is the one where Satan says, if you're really the son of God, you know, jump off this, uh, um, uh, you know, or sorry, um, not, not this one. This is the one where, where <laughs> Satan put Jesus up on the uh, tall pinnacle and said, all the nations of the world and all their splendor I will give to you if you will just bow down and worship me. And Jesus responds by saying, you shall fear the Lord your God and uh, you shall worship him and swear by his name. All right. That's good. That was, that's God calling. All right. Um, uh, so Jesus quotes this, all right? Um, and so once again, we find out what the Israelites were supposed to learn. Jesus succeeded in learning this lesson, uh, but the Israelites failed. Now, how is that related to these stories? Uh, it's related to these stories because, so these stories have often been used, sometimes I think inappropriately by the church over the centuries, to say uh, you shouldn't rebel against uh, the, the human authority. Uh, now, in general, you know, I don't think rebellion is always a good idea, but, but, but some leaders have used this inappropriately to say, if you even question my authority, if you even push back, uh, you know, you know, think of the, what happened to Korah and the uh, earth opening beneath them. I don't think that's quite the appropriate application for that, uh, because I think what's really at issue here is God's authority, all right? God's authority is what's really at issue here. Um, Moses, as we read through, it says that he was actually the most humble man on earth. Moses wasn't even trying to assert his own authority over other people, uh, but Moses was trying to assert God's authority over people. And so, so what's really at issue here is God's authority. Jesus understood that, uh, and Satan was trying to trip him up in exactly that one spot of, of uh of uh, God's authority. So we find out that the people of Israel, not only were supposed to be a people of his presence, a holy people, a mobilized people, a dependent and a trained people, but also a grateful and God-fearing people. And by God-fearing, I'm not just talking about always trembling, oh, I'm so scared, I'm so scared, uh, but in, um, I'm talking about the sense of all of my welfare depends on God's favor to me. And if it all depends on God's favor to me, if God were to withdraw that favor, I'd be in a heap of trouble. I wouldn't have anything to hold myself together. So that's what I mean by a God-fearing people and a grateful people. In the Deuteronomy passage I just read, uh, it highlights how God's going to just hand them all these goods, all this surplus, all this abundance without them having to work for it. Uh, and so we're to walk in, in gratitude. All right, let's, uh, let's move on to one more story uh, before we wrap up today. If you could turn a few chapters ahead to Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20. All right. So it's a very, Numbers chapter 20 is a very personal uh, story. By that, I mean a lot of, a lot of things happen to some, some of these personalities. Uh, Miriam, uh, Moses' sister, dies at the beginning. Uh, this one because of her earlier uh, sin. This is this is now uh, decades later, probably. But Miriam dies uh, because uh, just she. Well, she's old at this point. She's older than Moses, and he's already in his hundreds. So, 
Um, and then at the end of the chapter, Aaron dies. Um, and, uh, and so uh, there's these sad events for this family. Uh, but then in the middle of the chapter, something happens to Moses. And so let's, uh, let's read through that together, starting with me in verse 8. Take the rod. Oh, sorry, I'm going to go back to verse, uh, uh, let's see here. Um, <clears throat> all right, verse 2. Start in verse 2 with me. There's no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. Does this sound like anything that's happened before? Verse 3, the people thus contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? And why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us into this wretched place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron came in uh, from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. Then the glory of the Lord uh, appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, Take the rod, and you and your, con- and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation, and speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water. You shall bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So more mercy from God. You see this over and over and over again throughout the story. Mercy from God. Verse 9. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock, and he said to them, Listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand, and he struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Those were the waters of Meribah, because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord, and he proved himself holy among them. So, fascinating story, and the result of it is that Moses doesn't get to enter the promised land. Now, when I read this, if, if you haven't already been struggling with how God, the picture of God feels kind of harsh, I, you know, you're probably struggling by this point. I, I know I struggle with this. Like, who else deserves to go into the promised land more than Moses? Uh, all the miracles that were done through Moses, all the, the burdens that Moses have, has borne, all of the service that he's rendered to the people of God, uh, all of the, the, the ways God has used him so powerfully, and Moses doesn't get to enter the promised land. And why? Because he, it's something he didn't do right here. After all the things he did do right, it just doesn't seem, it just doesn't seem fair. So I do want to point out a couple things. It doesn't totally satisfy the sense in me of, of uh, distress, but um, a, a few things I want to point out. Um, uh, God told Moses to um, speak to the rock, and instead Moses strikes it. Now that might seem like a, a, a little nuance, a, a little tiny detail. It might not seem like a big deal to us, and yet for some reason, 
God wanted him to speak instead of strike it. Now, what's especially odd about this story is almost identical to another story in chapter 17 of Exodus. All right, if you remember that story, won't go back and read it all, but in that story, they were actually in the same location. Uh, This area is called Meribah. It's also called uh, Massa. Meribah means to quarrel, and Massa means to test. And uh, and so uh, the same almost exact incident happened. This would have been years before, uh, and where the Israelites were gathered here. And at that time, Moses had struck the rock. God had told him to strike the rock. Uh, so you would have thought, like, you know, in Moses' mind, maybe he just was thinking, uh, I better strike the rock again like I did that one time years before. Uh, but in this incident, God wanted him to speak to the rock. Why? We're not really sure. Maybe it was because God was teaching him a different lesson than what he taught the last time they were here. I, I don't really know. It's not really clear. But for whatever reason, Moses didn't do it the way God wanted him to do it. And, uh, but, but, but more than that is what was going on in Moses' heart. Now, in Psalm 106, uh, verse 33, uh, you don't need to turn that right now, but Psalm 106, verse 33, uh, the psalmist interprets this incident as saying Moses was rash or angry when he did this, okay? So something in his heart, uh, the other incidents, uh, you know, Moses got angry, but here, he actually seems to turn his anger on the people. In the past, in all the other incidents uh, where, where Moses was really frustrated with people, he brought that anger to God. He brought it directly to God and said, God, you, you do something with this. But in this case, he seems to turn the anger on the people. And in verse 10, he says, listen now, you rebels, shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? And, and that we is another little clue of what was going on here. Somehow, that sense of responsibility, that burden that Moses felt, somehow he was taking it out on the people, and, and somehow he was thinking that it, it was he himself that was doing this work. All right? So that's another key difference. And then, uh, uh, above all, probably the most important thing that we need to notice about this passage, what was happening in his heart, verse 12, God's interpretation of this event. In verse 12, it says, Uh, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed me. Because you have not believed me. So again, it's still hard for me to struggle with, well, how is this evidence that Moses didn't believe God? It's it's not 100% clear to me. But in God's interpretation, somehow God took this as, you didn't believe me. And if there's any other theme that is as pervasive throughout the Bible as this theme, it's the theme that, we stand in God's good grace, not because of anything we do, not because of, any, not because of our heritage, not because of all the good things we have done, not for all the service that we've done. We only stand in God's good grace for one reason and one reason only, and it's belief, trust. There's nothing else by which we stand that makes us right before God but belief. And something about how Moses handled this situation, whether it was the anger in his heart, whether it was directing it at the people instead of going to God, whether it was the, um, the, you know, the discrepancy between striking and hitting, whatever that was, it was a sign of unbelief before God. And then, this, and then almost as a synonym to that, God says, to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. There's something about how Moses did, did that or failed to do that, 
that didn't demonstrate to the Israelites God is a truly holy God. All the other ways that Moses led showed the people God is really the holy God that he says he is. But something about this made it so that God was not demonstrated, is not shown to the people as holy. So, what were they supposed to learn from this? Well, uh, in chapter 20, we find out, if you look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 6, this refers to this exact same incident in uh, chapter 6, verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Massa and Meribah are the same place. Massa just means testing. Meribah means quarreling. So those, those, that's the same location. So in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, it refers directly back to this incident. Uh, does anyone know of a New Testament location, a New Testament place where this gets quoted? Yeah, Jesus quotes this again in, yeah, score, yeah. Um, Jesus quotes this again. Uh, This time, this is the incident where uh, Satan says, um, uh, jump off this cliff and you're not going to hurt yourself because the angels are going to sweep up and and pick you up. And and Jesus' response to Satan is, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Mass. And so Jesus is referring directly back to this exact incident uh, that we just read about in Numbers chapter 20. And we might be wondering, well, what does it mean to test the Lord? Because there, there's actually three other locations in the Old Testament that God even says, test me. So why was it wrong for them to test God in this situation? To figure that out, we've got to go back to the other event that happened in the same location at Massa and Meribah. It's in Exodus chapter 17. You don't have to turn there right now, but at Exodus chapter 17, verse 7, it says this, about this incident. And he named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? So there was something about the rebellion of the people at that, in that incident, something about how they were complaining, when they were complaining about the water, something about that demonstrated... What, what they were questioning was, is God really with us? How many times when we are at, at that point of testing in our lives, when we're in that, that point of trial, and our first question is, well, well, God, are you even with me? Are you even here with me? I don't see any evidence of you anywhere. All right? And, and of course, the Israelites had less reason for excuse because they had the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud there, in, with the tent of meeting, and they had this visible, tangible reminder God was with them. He was showing up all the time in all these miraculous ways. Uh, and in spite of that, they were saying, is God really with us? But how many times do we, are we like the Israelites, and once the trial comes, the moment things get hard, we say, is God really among us? So, we find out that the Israelites were not only supposed to become a people of God's presence, a holy people, a mobilized people, a dependent, trained people, a grateful, God-fearing people, but also a trustfully obedient people. They were supposed to obey what God wanted them to do, 
in the way he wanted them to do it, and that was supposed to come out of trust, this trust that Moses did not demonstrate the day that he struck the rock instead of speaking to it. We're going to wrap up, and if the, um, we could have the worship team uh, come up. Uh, it's time to conclude the sermon, but I do want to point out one last thing in all these stories that we just covered. Does anybody notice any common themes or common words that shows up again and again? Complaint. Yeah. Um, so I could, we could do hundreds of sermons about complaining. I'm going to spare you from that. Uh, but I do want to say two things as we prepare our hearts to respond to God in worship. Two, two final things about complaining. Uh, we find out in Scripture, I already pointed this out about, about Moses, uh, when Mo- Moses complained also, but 99% of the time when he complained, the complaint was to God. All right, He took his complaint directly to God, whereas the Israelites, they complained about each other, and they blamed each other. Okay, or they blamed Moses, or they blamed Aaron, or they blamed leadership. All right? That is a big difference. It is okay for you to vent. It is okay for you to pour out your heart, even if it's full of anger and, and even rage at what's going on, either inside you or around you. That's okay to do that, but God wants you to take it to him. And the area where Moses seemed to mess up was when instead of taking that complaint to God, like he had on all the other occasions— he took, that, he took that complaint to the people and said, you rebels, all right? So that's one thing I want to say about complaining. The other thing I want to say about complaining, again, sparing you from the dozens of sermons that could be preached from this word alone, <clears throat> how many times does our complaining come out of unbelief? How many times does our complaining, it's not just like, oh, I'm so frustrated it's snowing again. I'm so frustrated that the weather, you know, it's not just that, but it's coming out of this, this doubt that God's really with us. Is God really with us? And in that way, our complaining is actually a testing of God, the kind of testing that we're not supposed to do. So I want to welcome you in this uh, next song uh, to commit your heart to join Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus succeeded where the Israelites failed. And I encourage you, don't join the Israelites in the wilderness, but come and join Jesus. Lord, we want to surrender all. We want to follow you. Would you guide us in your way? We want to join you in the wilderness and lament over the sins we find around us and with us. We don't want to fall into the traps that uh, the Israelites fell into, the traps that Moses himself fell into. Lord, we want to follow you. We pray for the grace for that. And Lord, as you commissioned us to go out and be the light of the world, be the salt of the earth, Lord, pray for every heavenly blessing necessary for that. May the love of God, the grace of the Lord Jesus, and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit go with you as you go out and be his messenger, be his herald, 
be his disciple in the world. Be so that the world might taste and see that the Lord is good. In Jesus' name, amen.